K-A-L-W. Yeah, it was amazing. It just captured all the things that I love about San Francisco. It's just made me fall in love with it all over again. Today, we go to a show that's all about celebrating the city by the bay. If you don't believe in Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell won't <laughs> live. You have to live San Francisco for San Francisco to be alive. A new story from our series, Culture Keepers. Then two artists speak about how their work honors Black men and boys. During this time, we're discussing Black girl magic, and my son wanted to know where the Black boy magic was. And we take a look at the legacy the Black Panthers left in East Oakland. We gave out 10,000 free bags of groceries. We must have tested maybe 12,000 people for sickle cell anemia. Black history in the Bay. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Today we start with a new story from our series, Culture Keepers, profiling people who uplift traditions in their Bay Area communities. I was very much fascinated by bells and lights and whistles. It's my role to learn it well and protect it and keep it. Alors, je vais faire l'explication en anglais. <laughs> Just the energy and the drive that they have, like the future is looking fucking golden. For more than 45 years, the musical parody Beach Blanket Babylon entertained tourists and San Franciscans alike. The show featured body songs, political commentary, and over-the-top costumes, including an enormous hat of the city's skyline. But the show held its last performance at Club Fugazi in 2019. And for a couple of years now, there's been another production on that stage, an acrobatic homage to San Francisco's history. KALW's Sandra Halliday met with the creatives who've reintroduced San Francisco-themed theater to Club Fugazi with a show that celebrates the city. I'm in North Beach at Club Fugazi for a rehearsal of a show unlike anything I've seen before. Acrobats move across the stage as if they're one organism. From the front row, I'm so close that I can hear the squeaks of shoes and see clouds of chalk dust. I almost jumped out of my seat when an acrobat swung out past the stage and another one plunged down a pole to land with their face an inch from the ground. Don't get too close though. These performers are rehearsing Dear San Francisco, a cross between a contemporary circus, a sporting event, and a cabaret. Co-director and creator Gypsy Snyder didn't need to run away to the circus. She grew up in one. My parents originally were working at the San Francisco Mime Troupe uh, in the late 60s. Really, they wanted to create something that was going to be uplifting and positive, and so they kind of created this offspring out of the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which was called the Pickle Family Circus. Gypsy made her debut there at age four, and she's been performing in and teaching contemporary circus internationally ever since. During a fateful trip home in 2019, 
I was here visiting my father and Beach Blanket announced that they were going to close. And it just hit me like lightning. She called Club Fugazi. And said, what are you going to do now that they're gone? And they said, well, we have no idea. That's when Dear San Francisco was conceived. Co-producer and executive director David Dower. Actually, the point of being here is to love the city and uh, basically hold the heart of the city as a beating heart, as a, as a live. The way that Beach Blanket Babylon once did. Just like in Peter Pan. If you don't believe in Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell won't <laughs> live. Uh, and so we thought we were making a piece that would remind people that you have to fight for San Francisco, you have to live San Francisco for San Francisco to be alive. The show is about to start. I always warn the front row that we have a little extra traffic up here. And as you've seen, the artists are going to be jumping off the stage, they're going to be running by. But they're not going to pick on you and they're not going to drag you up there. What do audience members expect to see? The unexpected. <laughs> lots of fun, lots of surprises, and lots of San Francisco-ness. We were here when it was Beach Bank at Babylon. Okay. And we wanted to come back and see it because we lived here 25 years ago. And I uh, just love North Beach. It's just great to be back. When they arrive at the theater, attendees are encouraged to write love letters to San Francisco. Yes, we're just about to write our love letter to Good. San Francisco. David Dower shares one of his favorite letters. It's pinned on the bulletin board at the entrance and includes a drawing of the acrobats. Dear San Francisco, I'm not great with words, but I will try for you. You brought me out of the darkest time of my life. Thank you for helping me find a home in myself. Dateline, San Francisco, April 18, 1906. The show starts with a film of old San Francisco projected on the rear of the stage, then a newsreel of the 1906 earthquake. Some performers move as shadows behind the screen. Some speak directly to the city itself. With all of your faults, you shudder and crumble. Yet like a phoenix of fools, you rise up again and rush off the ashes. Down your winding streets and despite my stumbling feet, we find a common ground. We are poets, radicals, and we will roll like the fog. There's hoop diving, pole climbing, diabolo, juggling, trapeze, music making, and more throughout the show. There is no fourth wall. Okay, see? The performers invite the audience to join in as they trip through San Francisco history. I love that sound. I have one last thing to ask from y'all. If you could all count down from three. When we reach zero, we're all gonna take the candy together and I promise you, we're gonna have a great time. <laughs> There's insider local knowledge alongside well-known sports and literary references. I won't promise you'll never go hungry, but that you won't be sad on this gutted, breaking globe. But I can show you, baby, enough to love to break your heart forever. Diane DePrima. But the heart of the show, where it gets its name, is those love letters to San Francisco. Dear San Francisco, thank you for welcoming a closeted gay boy from Alabama 
and giving me the space and acceptance to be myself. Dear San Francisco, nowhere was my home until I met you. Performers even read segments of letters written by tonight's audience members. Dear San Francisco, it feels like forever. Dear San Francisco, thanks for the magic. I fell in love with my now wife lying under a blanket in a thunderstorm in Glen Park. We got married three years later. Pure magic. Signed, Sean. I love thunderstorms. This is adorable. Sean, where are you? Right there. After the show, the crowd pours out onto Beach Blanket Babylon Boulevard. This is a great show. Uh, Beach Blanket Babylon was the time and place, and it's good to see a new generation. They did things that I, I couldn't believe somebody could possibly do. Yeah, it was amazing. It just captured all the things that I love about San Francisco. It's just made me fall in love with it all over again. Something that's been happening in this theater for decades. In San Francisco, I'm Sandra Halliday for Cross Currents. Sandra produced that story as a current fellow in our Audio Academy. So what would you say in your love letter to San Francisco? Go to kalw.org slash crosscurrents and you'll find a link that shows you how to send your love letters to San Francisco. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. KALW's Janae Darden, host of Sights and Sounds, is bringing conversations with Bay Area artists to live audiences. In a recent event at Books, Inc. in Alameda, she interviewed two visual artists. Nancy Cato turned a Bayview mural she created into the book Jamari's Journey, about a Black boy who escapes the oppressions in his life through a magic portal. And Awan Mance's book, What Do Brothers Do All Day, celebrates Black men through illustrations of them in everyday life. Here's an excerpt of Janae's conversation with the two artists. I want to start, Nancy, with you. I was um, digging up some stuff about you, looking you up. Da, da, da. And, and I want to ask this question to both of you, but did you, can you talk about how you mentioned that when you first start off as an artist, you noticed you weren't drawing Black people. Um, and that was a challenge for you and, and a process. Can both of you talk about um, just how you grew to, to be passionate about covering and um, illustrating Black people? So I'm going to pass the mic to Nancy. Okay, so <clears throat> it's funny because with my artwork, my Uncle Donnie was also an artist, and I had his art book, and all of his art books were full of white people. So that was my first introduction, was copying his work. 
But then even when I got into drawing my own artwork, it's true. Um, like through hip hop and everything, most of my characters looked either white or Latino. So it took a while. And I think it came from over time actually looking at myself and identifying with myself before I could actually start like, you know what I mean? Like drawing me. But I also had a photographer, a teacher of mine who um, asked me why I was drawing white people. And he was white. And I was just like, what are you talking about? I, I mean, you know what I mean? And he and I started looking at all my art and none of them were black people. So I, it, it changed, but I had to really, it's, it's amazing. I had to actually really look at myself and start to observe my surroundings before I could actually do that. And I actually see kids doing the same thing in the schools. So it's not just me, like it, 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 it's a thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I think that someone asked me the same question just a couple of days ago. So I've been thinking about this. And um, I think, um, I know one of the first drawings of a person that I can remember doing was myself. Um, and, I, and I made myself brown. And um, I think I was about five. Um, and so I think um, I drew... Um, I was really influenced by artists like Norman Rockwell a lot, um, but I was trying to draw some of those same small-town, quaint scenarios, but with Black people. Um, but I was also trying to draw a diversity of people. Um, and so I think part of it is, you know, I, my family, I was born in Florida, my family's from the South, and, and it's a very large family. My dad was one of eight, and so I think a lot of the most salient people I saw were Black people. Um, you know, I definitely remember drawing black people, but I also remember drawing a diversity of people, um, you know, trying to emulate some of the folks who I, Robert McCloskey would draw, for example, you know, who did Make Way for Ducklings. Um, and so, but the black image was really important to me because the 70s was such a time for black representation, black power, and black aesthetics. Both of these books center on black men and boys. And I wanted to know... Um, well, let me backtrack. We, you know, and and a lot of times when we look at works centering on black men and black boys, it's not always positive. And not even just works, just just the narrative of black men and black boys is not often positive. And so we see Awan, we see in your book just black boys and men of all ages just just doing their thing, just living their life, just being human, just being human, right? And and Jamari's journey, um, we just see this little boy with just an imagination um, and an innocence. And we don't see that with black men and black boys either enough in mainstream media. So talk about your inspirations um, behind why you wanted these stories, these illustrations, this art to be about black boys, black men. Who wants to go first? Nancy? Well, I have a 12-year-old, and um, I think during this time <clears throat> where we're, we're discussing, like, black girl magic and the black queen and things of that nature, my son wanted to know where the black boy magic was. And so that was kind of hard because it's like, man, the history. Like, you know, it's got to kind of bring him up to date. But I wanted him to see a reflection of himself um, and... And his magic, because he, he's very, very magical in the way he sees the world and creates and everything. And what I realized in the Bayview, you don't really get 
because these were in the Bayview. They were five feet by 10 feet. Um, it was a mural, my first <clears throat> arts commission mural in um, the Bayview. And so you don't, get a, you don't get a chance to actually see young boys like discovering something outside of their own community in an innocent way. And so I, I wanted to do that. And just in case a black child in general walked by the murals, they could actually see themselves. But I think the uh, icing on the cake would be if a black boy saw himself in space, then that would be like... Um, I think um, my book grew out of my portrait series of A Thousand and One Black Men. Um, and I started the series simply because I felt like there was a conversation about objectification of that wasn't happening. Um, and I was really thinking about the degree to which black men and boys' images are used to sell a whole bunch of things, ideas, products, ideas, <laughs> fear, for example, um, that don't necessarily, that don't at all benefit black men and boys. And so I wanted to create some images that showed blackness, um, and particularly black men and masculinity, the way that I see it. Um, and so I wanted to change the visibility and, um, and uh, just draw people as I saw them without wanting them to be anything that they're not. Um, I was thinking about the role of the black artist, and one of the things I thought was, um, I was just thinking about that recently, that um, the role is to um, portray our communities in all of their diversity um, with love and without judgment. And so when I was drawing the images of black boys and men for What Do Brothers Do All Day, I wanted to make sure to show a lot of different ways of being black and really stay away from the notion that there is a right way, there's a good representation and a bad representation. Um, there's all kinds of things, and it's all good. Those were artists and authors Nancy Cato and Awan Nance talking to KLW's Janae Darden at Books, Inc. in Alameda. Nancy's book is Jamari's Journey, and Awan's is What Do Brothers Do All Day? And there's more to that conversation. You can hear it by going to klw.org slash crosscurrents. This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Papa. February is Black History Month, so we're bringing you a story from our project, Hey Area, where you ask questions and our reporters find the answers. And today's question comes from three members of the East Oakland Collective, a group made up of mostly millennials working for positive change in deep East Oakland. Candace Elders, Marquita Price, and Mark Houston wanted to know... What's the history and impact of the Black Panthers on East Oakland? In this story from our archives, reporter Howard Dykoff has the answer. We all know the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense had a major impact on lives of people in the Bay Area during the 60s and 70s. I am not standing for violence, uh, but I do stand for self-defense. That's Huey Newton in an interview from 1968. 
The Minister of Defense for the Black Panthers was in jail at the time and planning a political campaign. I think this will be a, a, a large job because it's going to be done from a grassroots level, from door to door in the community. It will, uh, we will consider the people on 7th Street who stand on the corners, who have lost all faith in uh, this society. Many folks assume most of the Panthers' activities were focused in West Oakland. After all, that's where they had their first headquarters and many of their initial activities. But they had a lot going on in East Oakland as well. The Black Panthers located their national headquarters at 73rd Avenue and East 14th and later moved to 99th Avenue. That's where the Roots Community Health Center operates now. And that's deep East Oakland. They operated many locations for their free breakfast programs, and they started the Oakland Community School. I taught science, I taught uh, music, and performing arts. One teacher was Black Panther Sutero Ned, also known as James Mott. We have people who started businesses based upon the principals out of East Oakland that went to the school. And he taught a lot of them. Fred Blackwell was one, <laughs> he was one of my students too. Blackwell was Oakland's assistant city administrator for many years and now heads the San Francisco Foundation. In addition to working with young people, the party helps seniors in low-income areas. I mean, within East Oakland, we actually created what we call senior satellite centers because there were no senior centers. We were taking handicapped people, seniors, and we were transporting them back and forth. We had a program called SAFE, Seniors Against the Fearful Environment. And former Black Panther member Billy Jennings remembers other East Oakland programs as well. We was giving away thousands of bags of groceries. We gave out 10,000 free bags of groceries. We, we must have tested maybe 12,000 people for sickle cell anemia. Uh, we registered some of 8,000 people to vote. So those are some of the big things that happened in East Oakland. And plus, we started working with some of the churches there. Uh, one of our strongest allies was Allen Temple, who was run by J. Alfred Smith Sr. at that time. And we did a lot of voter registration from there. And matter of fact, when we Black Panther Party moved, we sold them our property under market value. Which the Reverend Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr. is Pastor Emeritus of the Allen Temple Baptist Church, one of the biggest and most socially involved congregations in Oakland. He's in his 80s now and recovering from a stroke. He told us about the land the Panthers sold to the church. It comprises the Family Life Center, and to be more specific, the library of the Family Life Center, where I now sit, is where their office and headquarters were. The Reverend says engaging with people is as critical now as it was during the Black Panthers' heyday. These are treacherous times, they're perilous times. Our democracy is at stake. And I think that people ought to get up out of the rocking chair of apathy and continue the tradition that the fight must go on that we have to keep moving, and that every generation has to fight in this struggle. The struggle continues, 
one person deeply involved is Barbara Lee, who's represented Oakland in Congress for more than two decades. I attended uh, Mills College. That's where I met Huey Newton and Elaine Brown and Bobby Seale. And I ended up becoming a community worker with the Black Panther Party. I was a black student union president at Mills College and got the black student union involved with the survival programs with the Black Panther Party. Lee says the Black Panther legacy is deeply entwined with East Oakland and the entire nation. So I think when you look at their 10-point program, the rest of the community and the country followed suit. They were in the vanguard. They started the survival programs, and they started many programs that now have been replicated and brought to scale by so many government units and private and nonprofit organizations. The Black Panthers really inspired me to start the East Oakland Collective about three years ago. So really following in their footsteps. That's Candace Elders. Now her group runs Feed the Hood to help unhoused people in East Oakland. I think we all in alignment with what the Black Panthers did, you know, with their free breakfast program. And really the whole mindset of we do for our people, we don't rely on anyone else. We don't rely on, you know, government. We don't rely on, on agencies. Marquita Price says groups like the East Oakland Collective fill social gaps in the same spirit that the Black Panthers did. And another collaboration that we're in is the Black Culture Zone. We're really, um, really invested in honoring the, the legacy of black people and the, the current life of black people here um, in East Oakland, all Oakland, but definitely in East Oakland. So to answer the question, what's the lasting legacy of the Black Panther Party in East Oakland? It's all around, and it continues to this day. In East Oakland, I'm Howard Dykoff for Cross Currents. reported that story in 2019 as a collaboration with Oakland Voices, an award-winning community journalism project that trains East Bay residents to tell stories about their neighborhoods. Marco Seiler-Gonzalez helped produce that story. Today's Cross Currents team includes Alistair Boone, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shireen Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Marissa Ortega-Welch, Sunni Khalid, Angela Johnston, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Dawood Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba. Mm-hmm.